Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Be Better Tomorrow podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fisher. This month, I am proud to bring you an old friend of mine. We lost track of each other for some time, but now our mutual interest in leadership has brought us back together, and I'm thrilled to put her on this show. She is Shannon Lee, the author of Servant Leader Mindset. She's also the creator of the Slapcast podcast and serves as the executive director of Relay. That's R-E-L-A, but it's a nonprofit organization that trains the next generation of leaders. We got into a great set of conversations here around servant leadership, micromanagement, the emotional intelligence it takes to be a leader, but I'm not going to tell you all about it. I want you to hear from Shannon Lee. So what are some of the things that Relay is doing with COVID right now? Some of the things that we're doing, obviously our, our organization is a learning and development organization. And so most of the training that we've done up until quarantine, up until COVID was all brick and mortar. So we mm-hmm. would have public sessions where we would invite people usually to a cohatch location for anyone who listens outside of the Columbus area. Cohatch is just a co-working um, company that has locations all over our city. And so we would get a room there and people would come in from all over the community to a training session, or we would go to a company and deliver a workshop to that company. With COVID, we've had to move all of that to a virtual environment uh-huh. uh, for obvious reasons. But we're also thinking through not just how can we take what we used to do in a brick and mortar setting in person and how can we create a virtual expression of that, but how can we create a myriad of options for learning and development that range from live workshops all the way to self-directed workshops. And so we begin to start offering those. And then we began to reimagine our events because we have historically had two events every year, one in the spring and one in the fall. Mm, And the event industry, as you know, has taken a huge hit. Thankfully, events are not the bread and butter of our organization anymore. It used to be many, many years ago. They used to have three major events a year. And that was pretty much what this organization did when it was, it was known as something else then. Mm -hmm. And we intentionally, of course, never knowing what was going to happen in 2020, we intentionally about three or four years ago started shifting the focus of our organization away from events, meaning we're still having the events, but we weren't placing as much of our budgetary line items on those events. And we started shifting all of that to our learning and development workshops. So that's been great because with our events, they've, they've changed a lot. To answer your question specifically as it pertains to events, one of the things that we've done is our in-person events, we've moved to platforms that allow us to have, quote unquote, a stage where we can interact with participants via a live chat. There are a lot of platforms that do that, but there's one particular platform we've used called Remo that allows folks to upvote questions. And so you can see what questions are most important to the audience. So let's say you were on that event with us, Jason, you'd be able to ask a question and if 15 other people said, yes, that's the question I'm interested in too, they could upvote your question. And so in real time, as we're interacting with our panel or other speakers, we can say, wow, this one has 25 upvotes. So we would make sure that we would prioritize those questions and they make their way to the top and they don't get buried like, uh, yeah. like a lot of other platforms where you have to really sift through this way you can focus on the ones with the top votes. And, um, this platform mimics a, a banquet hall, if you will, because you can have, there's different floors and you can have different things going on in different floors and people can enter 
and kind of network so they can sit down at a table, so to speak. Oh. And as soon as you sit down at a table, you everybody's video appears. And if there's six other people at the table, you can talk to those other six other people. And then you can leave the table and go to another table, just like you would at a networking event. Yeah. What was the name of this again? Because this is some of the features I've been looking for and have not been able to find. It's called Remo, R-E-M-O. Okay. And it's a subscription just like most other you know, sure. like Zoom and all that, you know, it's a subscription basis and, and the type of subscription you get, of course, is based on your needs. Yeah. Um, and then, so we've done one of those already and it was really successful. And what we did to account for social distancing and safety is our speakers were all in the same room. We met at a sound stage that Remo has. And I'm sorry, it's not that Remo doesn't have, it's a local company that uses Remo. And we went to their sound stage. They set up cameras, lights, microphones. We all sat six feet apart, had multiple cameras, and as if we were on stage together at a live event with people in the room. Instead, everybody was, you know, live streaming with us. For example, on nice. I think we were on multiple platforms: YouTube, Facebook, and maybe LinkedIn. And so that's another thing that we've done. And then we're going to add another layer of interest in our fall event coming up on September 30th called Impact Columbus. And we're actually gonna be addressing from a community standpoint, the issues surrounding not only COVID, but a lot of the racial unrest that we've experienced. Um, and, and this racial unrest, as you know, is not new. It's just simply that I think it has, um, I think more people have woken up to it, let's put it that way. Sure. And so we're addressing those things at this event. And so we're having a live event like we did in the spring, but then we're following up. Everyone who comes to that event gets access to a go at your own pace virtual conference. And so they'll get to hear from 10 to 15 speakers on various topics related to our overall theme. So those are just a few things that we're doing that go beyond just, oh, we used to have this in-person training and now we have a virtual version of it. We wanted yeah. to do a little bit more than that. And I think it's all good. My next question was going to be, how are you, how are you dealing with the signal to noise ratio? Because everybody who was doing something in person, training or, or speaking, seems to be switching to like a webinar model and kind of all doing the same. We'll give you a free hour where we don't really talk to you about anything and then try to sell you into the paid version of that program where they're, I don't know if the value ever turns around because if you don't give me any value in the first hour, I'm, I'm not going to pay you for hoping you'll give me value in your weekly session or whatever. So it sounds like you're doing some interesting things to go above and beyond that to bring, bring more value to your, to your clients and customers. Yeah. And you have to remember we're a nonprofit. So that doesn't mean we don't need to make money. We do need to sure. make money. Um, it's just what we do with our profits is different than a for-profit organization. Mm -hmm. But we do have to think about that. But in, in a traditional sales sense, um, we do think about funnels, which sure. is kind of what you're talking about. How do we create value? And then on the back end, hopefully uh, be able to charge people and to make money off of the um, any of our intellectual property, any yeah. of our proprietary training, coaching, et cetera. And so there is a lot of noise in that space. I will tell you, we haven't had, we don't have it completely figured out, but I think what organizations can do is really amp up what your unique value is. You should have had a unique value before COVID mm -hmm. that should be able to translate in this new environment. And it's one of the reasons why we wanted to use some of these lesser known platforms because people are, as I say, zoomed out. Yeah. You know, they're tired of being on GoToWebinar. They're tired of being on WebEx. They're tired of being on Zoom. How can we make a different experience? And so um, we're starting to do monthly live streams where people can engage that way. 
and not just another Zoom call, just trying to rethink those kinds of things. I think time will tell if that makes a difference or not. It's almost, it, it's really too early for us to know. This fall event is going to be um, the, the first time we've done a virtual event that we've charged for mm -hmm. because the one in the spring, we had to pivot to that very quickly and we didn't want to charge for it because we wanted to make sure we had enough people engaged. We weren't really sure what to charge. Well, now we've been able to do some research. And so we are charging for the fall event. So we will see, we'll have to put a pin in that. I'll have to get back to you and see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. I think everyone's in that same place. Like this is all so new that we're switching. We're figuring it out as we go, kind of building our wings as we fall, hoping that we fly uh, on the other side of it. But it's, it's a fun experience because I think you find out what's really important. Um, you're able to focus on, on things. Like you said, your, your unique thing that makes you you, focus on that, um, that unique quality that you can bring to your customers so that you guys do something beneficial for your clients. And I, I get the funnel idea. I just get really irritated when you sit through an hour and you get nothing except who is this person and why they did the thing that they did. And if you sign up for my program now at 50% off, which you know no one's ever charged the full price to begin with, then I'll give you nothing. Maybe. I don't know. I never, I never get there because I don't trust people to, to follow through if they don't give me something up front. Yeah. And we don't do any of that. Good. So when we do free public workshops, it's as much value as we can pack into that time. Yeah. That's and my motto too. Like if I have to cut things, I'll get, give you a few nuggets, but they're solid that all the way through. I'm teaching something. I'm doing something. I'm not trying to just hustle you into the next sales step. A lot of people fear that when you give away that value, that in essence, you've diminished your offering or you've diminished your organization, mm -hmm. diminished your company. And actually what you're doing is you're creating a standout. When I think about the very few influencers that I follow religiously, the folks that when they do offer something that I will actually pay for just because they offered it, when I think about what makes them stand out in my mind, it's the value that they give away all the time. Right. There's constant value going out that I never have to pay a dime for. So I know when they're putting something out there with a price tag on it, my first thought is, wow, this must be really good. Right. You're building a relationship as well. Yeah. If you're constantly I, giving that value, you're building a relationship with the people who are listening to you. Like you said, you've probably got a few people that you listen to. I know I've got a few. I got to interview one of them a few months ago. It was really exciting. But if he comes out with something, I'm usually going you know what, for all the value he's given me throughout the years, even if this is a bomb, I'll be okay with that. I'm going to buy his yeah. book, even if I don't read it and just give it away because I respect all the value he's given before. And I want to kind of pay for that in, in retroactively. Absolutely. So with all the things that you're doing with, with leadership and coaching, uh, what do you think are the key things for people who maybe you're making that move from individual contributor to more of a leadership role that, that you see People, you may assume, and I may assume that everyone knows, and they just don't. I was like hearing those stories from folks. They, they really don't. In fact, the data tells us that they don't know what they're doing. Gallup tells us that only 5% of people in management or leadership actually have innate leadership qualities. And in other words, they have an innate ability to lead others. The rest of us, we have to learn. Yeah. So if someone is new in leadership, moving from individual contributor to manager or to supervisor, whatever the title is, you have people that now work for you. The biggest need that I find is that the mindset shift of thinking like an individual contributor to thinking like a leader is what needs to change. And that requires some type of coaching, training, mentorship. Um, and I don't just mean a workshop. I mean like really working on 
what does it look like to show up as a manager of others versus an individual contributor? Because what ends up happening, and I've seen this so many times in our work, is when the new manager tries to manage people the way he or she used to manage their individual contributor role, they start treating people like process and you can't do that. Yeah. And so if they delegate at all, and that's a big if, they delegate tasks only, they don't delegate meaningful work, and they tend to delegate without thinking about the other person's development in mind. And so a lot of the work that we do is focusing on first, the mindset. How are we thinking when we're leading? How are we feeling when we're leading? And how is that impacting the way we're showing up? How can we shift our thinking to the way a leader thinks and the way a leader makes decisions? What emotions are next necessary in order to do that? And how do we bring up those emotions? How do we create and choose the right emotions to get us the results that we want? We all want as leaders for the people who work for us to produce, to be productive. But you know what? I think deep down, a lot of leaders also want the people to be pretty fulfilled and happy and excited to be doing it because that actually makes them more productive and it actually creates more accountable people. There's a big difference between me holding you accountable and me helping you develop into an accountable person. That second scenario, that takes a true leader. Any manager can say, Jason, I need you to get this done by five o'clock on Friday and hold you to it. Anybody can do that if they want. That's a simple skill that you can learn how to do. But it takes a true leader who's committed to Mm -hmm. developing others to now help you to be an accountable person and someone that I don't have to follow up with constantly to get things done. And you're actually coming to me innovating. You're coming to me with ideas. And that's something we have to learn. Yeah. I think we, I think one of the problems you run into is we do a disservice to the people we're promoting because we promote the people who are the best individual contributors, but don't necessarily have those leadership skills. And we don't, like you said, we don't train them. We don't tell them what to do. And I think part of that might be because, the people above you don't know it because they've been winging it for so long. And the people above them have been winging it for, and those, those 5% that you talk about that do have those leadership skills, they do it so intuitively. They've never taken the time to understand why they do what they do so they can pass that information. And the knowledge that that new manager holds or that supervisor holds, depending on their personality or their understanding of leadership, sometimes that knowledge or that power, if you will, almost becomes weaponized, Right. So they know something and they want you, Sure, I'm your boss, I, I, I need you to figure this out, almost like a cat and mouse game. At Relay, we're really big. Our how mm-hmm. in leadership is servant leadership. And part of servant leadership is giving people the answer to the final exam. And that, that feels counterintuitive because the way all of us went to school, and schools are still largely really behind the times when it comes to preparing people for the modern workforce, the schools are usually 25, sometimes even 30 years behind on these matters. And so what happens is the way we train students is you have to figure out, even in college, you have to figure out what that professor wants you to know on the test. And I hope you paid really close attention during lecture and in lab and you read everything and hope you pick out the right things to Mm -hmm. study in the limited time that you have between your schoolwork and your job and whatever, right? And then we come to work And Mm -hmm. we find ourselves five, seven, 10 years down the line, a boss, and we treat people the same way. We treat them like, you've got to figure it out. You better watch and learn, bud, or, you know, you're going to, it's either sink or swim. When in actuality, when we're trying to develop others, that doesn't work. That doesn't create success. It only creates more frustration. So when I say give people the answer to the final exam, I don't mean do the work for them. 
but you help them figure out how to get the work done in the way that you want it done so that they can be successful and build two primary things, competence and confidence. If I can help someone build those two things, eventually they will develop into an autonomous performer, which is what we want. Exactly. Because right, we don't exactly. want to have to micromanage. I mean, there see, it seems like some of my old bosses did, but I can't imagine it's pleasurable to micromanage a team of 10, 15 people. But if we can build those people, I think those are the perfect two points with confidence and competence, they can do what you need done and they are confident enough to be able to do it. And hopefully some psychological safety built in there that if they do make a mistake, you're not going to destroy them. It's going to be like, oh yeah, I wouldn't have done it that way. Or, mm, okay, next time let's learn, let's do this. But now you know that if you make a mistake, it's not the end of the world and you can still feel confident to move forward. Right. With that new we believe that, that the way learned. leaders do that is they learn how to diagnose what development level their employees are at at any given time, whether it be at their job or on or a specific task or goal. And diagnosing those development levels, there's four development levels. This is very intuitive to me. I, I went to school to be a teacher. I got my degree in education. So thinking in terms of development levels is very natural for me. But the average person in leadership never took a class on learning and development. Now, all of my development classes had to do with sure. pedagogy or how children learn. But there's a concept called adagogy, which is how adults mm -hmm. learn. We don't stop going through developmental stages of learning just because we're now adults and have a salary job with a 401k and an insurance plan, right? We still go through the levels of development of learning as an adult. And when leaders understand these levels and can match their leadership style to it and fill in the gap, in other words, provide missing information, provide what's missing to that learner. Um, again, not doing the work, but giving them the answers, helping them figure out how to get it done themselves. Simon Sinek even says that the role of the leader is to get the work done through the efforts of others so that that person can achieve more than they thought possible. So it's almost like, you're dreaming right. a little bit for those that work for you, but in order for them to really catch the vision of that dream that you have for their performance, you've got to coach them. And what this comes down to for the lever for the leader is pushing on one of two levers, the lever of direction and support. So when someone's giving too much direction, we call that micromanagement, um, or you might call that micromanagement in leadership terms. We call that over supervision, but when someone is new to a task, they need high direction. And when we fail to give that to them and just kind of leave them out swimming in the deep end, we're, we're actually doing what's called under supervision. And so the leader has to learn how to rightly sure. diagnose where that learner is in their process and then match their leadership style to it. The last thing I'll say about that sure. is every leader has a natural style. And if your natural style is what, what we call style four, which sounds like this. Hey, Jason, um, I need you to produce this podcast and this is when I want it done each week and um, let me know if you need me help, right? That's a style four, that's true delegation. But what if you've never done a podcast, mm -hmm. podcast before? What if you don't know what kind of microphone you need or what kind of equipment you need or what the platforms are? Or how, do you, how do you take care of hosting, et cetera? If you don't know sure. that, then I have to be more directive with you. In other words, I have to say one, two, three, here's how to, et cetera. But if my natural style is a four, that's going to feel like a stretch for me as a leader. And so a lot of leaders, we stay in our safety place where we feel comfortable 
But in the meantime, that means 75% of the people around us that we lead are more than likely not getting what they need and they're not feeling successful. And what I'm doing as a leader, if I'm like most leaders, is I'm blaming the learner. I'm saying, why are they dropping the ball? Why aren't they performing? Blah, blah, blah. Why are they late, et cetera. And so what sure. this does is this yeah. solves the problem of micromanagement because now I'm showing up to you what, with what you need when you need it. I like those definitions. I think when I refer to micromanagement, it's not, and now I'm trying to decide whether it's really that misalignment of expectations. The, the pr one prime example I had was may fall into that. Basically, I had, there are certain emails I had to send as an on-call representative when things blew up, but because we'd had so much conflict between the support staff there and the business side who were getting those emails, if we didn't use the exact right words, our managers would hear about it. And so basically they wanted us to write using a certain template, but that's never a perfect example. So I eventually, <laughs> yeah, I, well, I ended up, I ended up managing up to my boss and just kept sending her revisions until yeah. she got sick of it and wrote it herself. So, and I said, that's great. Cause now I don't have to do that anymore. And I don't so, want to do so that. In so in our model, <laughs> that would be considered the lack of the template would be considered an under supervision because the, the right amount of direction wasn't provided. If instead, this would have been my approach. Now, I've, some some industries have to be more specific and consistent, but just follow along here. I would set a SMART goal and say, you're going to send these specific emails. And then I would say, here's a template. Here's a how-to. Here is the frequency. For example, let's say there's multiple ones that need to be sent. And I want them sent sure. every third business day. And then I would let you know how I'm going to track your progress because a SMART goal has tracking in it. So I'm gonna have you do this on your own for just two days, Jason, because you're new to this job. And then I'm gonna check in with you and see how it's going. And then we're gonna wait wait a week and I'm gonna check in again. And then I'm not gonna check in again for two or three weeks. And for each of those check-ins, you're gonna know in advance, right? Because I'm giving you the answer to the, to the final exam. I'm not surprising you with a check-in. Yeah. When you know in advance when I'm gonna be check-in, it doesn't feel like micromanagement because we're both prepared. When it feels like micromanagement is when I pop in on a Thursday and say, so how's that going? Show me what you've done so far. And you weren't expecting it. That feels like an affront and it would to anybody. But then I explain my rationale sure. when I'm giving you such high direction. I say, listen, Jason, the reason why I'm doing this is because eventually I don't want to do this anymore. And I want you to be able to do it on your own. So I want to make sure that you're successful. So eventually you don't need my help like this. That lets you know as the learner that the light at the end of the tunnel is I'm going to kind of let you launch and I'm not going to babysit anymore. And so that mm -hmm. lets you know that my purpose is to develop you. It's not because I don't trust you. Right. And unless I say that, you're going to think yeah. I don't trust you. So it all comes down to providing that kind of appropriate supervision, appropriate to the person's learning level, how new they are to the task, how new they are to the role and making sure they have what they need to be successful, like a template for an email. And I think the explicit communication of those of those goals and purposes and directions is really important because so often we miscommunicate exactly. just by not communicating. You know exactly what's going on in your head, but I feel like you're micromanaging and not trusting me, but you're trying to get me to launch, but you're not telling me that. If you leave that part out, then we're looking at each other like we're completely alien because we just don't understand what's going on in the other person's head unless we make it explicit. It just feels uncomfortable sometimes. There's a great concept. I, I think it's an actual book called The Curse of Knowing. I don't know if you've heard of this, but Curse of Knowledge. Well, the Curse of Knowledge yeah. is, a, is a... Basically, so if you've read yeah. it or you're familiar with the concept, it just basically says, you know, once you know a thing, it's really hard to remember what it was like to not know the thing. <laughs> and so 
This yep. is what a lot of leaders exactly. face and why it's so important for leaders to think about the development level of those that they lead because we forget what it's like to not know the thing. And so when we don't communicate, the person on the other end of that lack of communication, our brains, Brene Brown talks a lot about how our brains are wired for story. Our brains want to finish the sentence. Our brains want to finish the story. So if I don't have enough communication mm -hmm. from my boss, my brain's going to fill in the story with whatever my brain thinks is true. And my brain is going to fill it in with whatever I've been conditioned to believe about certain things. So if I've been conditioned to believe that the lack of communication means X, whether that's positive or negative, that's what it's going to mean to me, whether or not it's actually true. And so right. it's so important to fill in that gap and to remember as leaders that people don't automatically know. We have to help them by giving, by filling in the blanks and by over communicating. Absolutely. You, you have to over communicate yeah. to people are sick yeah. of hearing it and then they might. <laughs> I empower it. the folks that work for me. I say, listen, I'm, I tell them my rationale. Here's why I'm doing this. If I start over communicating or you're getting something and you feel like you've got, you've got it down and I haven't quite caught on yet. I want you to know you can tell me that and nothing bad's going to happen. You're allowed to push back and go, I got it, Shannon. Yeah. And I'm going to be okay with that because sometimes I might miss that and I might not know it. So part of that communication is being open as a leader to being told by the people that you lead, hey, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to waste right. my time telling you 15 right. more times if you understand it. We can both be happy moving on with our lives and getting things accomplished. Do you, I'm going to jump back just a little bit because one of the other things I've found with folks is when they're making that, that initial move, getting out of the daily work of whatever they were doing as an individual contributor is really difficult because that's how you align. Like, I'm, my job is to get these tasks done. I, I check boxes and I get the work done, these, whatever steps it is and whatever work you're doing to actually take the step out to be a leader. And oftentimes, I don't know that organizations understand that people in those leadership positions aren't going to be doing all those other pieces. It's their job to help their people and support their people and grow their people. Like you said, to get, or Simon Sinek said, to get things done through the efforts of those other people. It's just getting people to shake that Hey, you're not going to be able to do all the work that you did before. Your role now is to help these other individuals, to help them grow, to help them know what you knew and do what you did and then do it better than you did. So you can all move yeah, up, so up in life. For me, where that starts with that new manager or that new supervisor is first looking at hidden belief systems. So <clears throat> some common ones that tend to come up are things like this. Well, if I don't, continue to do the tasks and the people who work for me are going to think that I'm not willing to roll up my sleeves and do the, the dirty work, so to speak. So here's a, here, mm -hmm. let's break that I've down for that a one. second and talk about how insidious that is. Number one, it insinuates that the work that you used to do was lower, less important and was grunt work. So automatically with that mindset, you are, inadvertently, and I do believe it's an innocent thing, you are inadvertently degrading the work of those who work for you. You're basically saying, if I'm not willing to quote unquote, lower myself to do your work, then what kind of leader am I? And so we kind of have to turn that belief on its head because we're, we're in essence disrespecting the work that we used to do and the work that people around us still do by treating it that way. The other mindset that I think gets in the way of these new leaders is that they must understand that they are now being paid to lead. They're not being paid to do. Now, granted, there are some managers, mm -hmm. middle managers that are in sort of like a, a 
a combination role where they're managing and they are uh, doing. And I get that. They, and that's a tightrope. But sure. let's just, let's make it a little bit black, more black and white right now, just for the sake of argument, that if you're in a true leadership role where your role is to get the work done through the efforts of others, one of the fears that is in place is, well, what if they don't do it as good as me? What if they drop the ball and I look bad? Some people are even worried, what if they do it better than me? Right? The, the bottom line is that mm -hmm. leader needs to get to the bottom of the, the true belief at work at why they're not letting go of those tasks. Because if they have any of those beliefs in, in play, then the way they're showing up in that role is going to eventually cause burnout. It's going to frustrate those around them. Because let's face it, someone had enough faith and trust in me to release work to me so that I could learn to be whatever kind of leader I am today. And don't other people around me deserve that opportunity as well? Don't my staff deserve the opportunity to learn what I've learned and to do what I've done, to skin their knees maybe, to make some mistakes maybe, sure, um, so that they can learn just sure. like I've had to learn and continue to learn? It's, it's a little bit of um, maybe hidden arrogance that leads us to believe that we have to have control of all of those things. We have to be willing to let them go so that other people can learn and grow as well. And this fear that, well, what if someone does a better job than me? My response to that is good. I want to find people who are better than me at certain things. There are certain things that um, my employees, Jason and Shannon, they are better than me. And that's awesome. Yes. I'm sorry. Your employees are Jason and Shannon. I'm not even joking. Yes. Okay. It really is. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I mean, you want to surround yes. yourself with people that can do things right. you can't do or do things better than you. Otherwise, you all have the same skill set. You're kind of wasting you effort are. somewhere. And the and thing is, is I'm not right. the smartest person in a room at the staff meeting. We're, collect we're collectively yeah. stronger, smarter, more creative, more intuitive, more um, innovative as a group than we are as individuals. And my job as a leader is to let the best ideas right. bubble to the top, not m just my ideas. Because I guarantee you that my ideas are not always the best ideas. In fact, I would venture to say they probably aren't most of the time. There are many times where I come to a meeting, I'm like, hey, this is what we're gonna do. And Jason goes, yeah, but have you thought about this? I'm like, oh, I didn't think about that. I like that better, you know? And that's exciting to me right. because you know what? it takes a little bit of pressure off. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to be right about everything. And that's wonderful. I can rely on my team so that we can make the best decision for our, our, our team. If it's a large, large organization or in our case, make the best decision for our event, for our program, for our nonprofit. And that we made that decision together through the efforts of everybody. I think that that's super important to be able to do that as a leader and to kind of have enough humility to let those best ideas bubble to the top, even if they're not yours. Yeah, and so often I, I find leaders kind of come to the meeting with their idea in mind, but then sometimes don't want to let go of it, whether it's a pride issue or something else. But even if a better idea came up, yeah. it's like, oh, that's, yeah, but that's not my idea. How are yeah. you? It's okay. It's okay. You, you can't, if you're the smartest yeah, person I think, in the room. You again, that goes room. back to those hidden belief systems right. that, that, they think if they don't have the best idea and the idea that gets action, that somehow they're failing as a leader and that's simply not true. And I see it all the time. We, young, we, we run a young professional uh, program that runs 10 months. 
So it's a pretty intensive program. It focuses on an emotional intelligence, servant leadership, um, performance management. And we're really trying to work with leaders who have either, they're not in a leadership role yet, but they want to be in one, or they've been in one for less than 15 years. So really that 40 and under crowd. And it's so common in mm -hmm. our discussions for someone to say, I've been in my management role for five years and I'm so afraid to let someone else's idea be the answer to the problem, even if I think it's better because I don't want everyone else in the room to know that I didn't have the best idea. And I say, well, why is that a problem? Well, because I'm the boss, I should have the answers. And this person, th this woman who right. said this to me, this was several years ago, wonderful person. You would never think in a million years that she was, you know, arrogant or haughty or anything like that. But she realized through our discussion that what was holding her back was just this misunderstanding about leadership that she had to have the best ideas. And she really, really didn't. Yeah. Well, it may not even be arrogance so much as fear. It's a, you know, it's a fear that people will, it's an imposter syndrome. People will realize that I'm not the person I am. Somebody else should take my role. I think leadership, I mean, when I grew up, leadership was you're the one in charge, you're the smartest person. That's why you're in charge. Yeah. And I've learned over the years, it's just not true. And it can't be true. How many organizations would be lucky enough to get the brightest, smartest person at the top <laughs> of the organization on the first try? <laughs> or, or then it just becomes this massive hierarchy of tearing each other down to try to make something happen instead of working together. So I'm so happy that the idea of servant leadership has come come through and is, is becoming more mainstream as people are learning and growing, kind of bringing it up from the ground up. I think I think leadership is going through that change and is, is much more effective now because we're growing people, helping them be more satisfied instead of top down demanding things of them and putting that that pressure on them. Well, it's let's talk about servant leadership for a second ways. because I do think there's some misunderstandings about servant leadership. I think that a lot of folks believe that a servant leader is someone who All right. gives everybody what they want and is kind of a doormat and just, Hey, whatever you need, I, I'll take care of it for you. And none of that is true. It's almost like it's, it's a dichotomous phrase. The, the leader part of servant leadership is, you know, as the leader, you're setting the, the big picture, the big vision. This is what we want to accomplish. Right. And then the hierarchy gets turned mm -hmm. upside down. And as the servant, then what you do is you now become, you now work for the people who you lead and you allow them to influence the how. Yeah. If this is the big picture, how are we going to get there together? And the leader needs to have a certain idea of what that path is and needs to be able to express that and define it, but then also remain open to how the individual skills and abilities and higher purpose of everybody involved in the, in the plan, how they can give expression to that vision and make it even bigger and better than even what the servant leader thought it could be. And then their role becomes developing others mm -hmm. in order to get them there. And so it's, it's, you're leading, but you're leading by serving others and helping them develop. And this doesn't mean you don't make tough decisions, right? Sometimes the best thing sure. for someone involved in an organization is to become an alumni of the organization. And those are tough calls that servant leaders have to make. Every leader has to make. I once had someone say to me, well, you can't be a servant leader and fire someone. And I'm like, oh, yes, you can. Sometimes you have to. And, and I've heard so many people that when they get fired after being at a place for so yeah. long, <laughs> it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, now whether that's the rose-colored glasses that we look back in, in, in areas with, or they were just afraid to move forward, even though it was the best thing for them. And they just never took that chance. And now they're forced to and are, and are able to find those opportunities to grow. I agree with you articulated it very well. The servant leader is 
serving by building and growing their people along the path of direction yeah. that they've laid out, but definitely not a doormat. I mean, some of the best leaders that I've had have definitely had to have the hard conversations, definitely had to have those those moments, but I also knew that they cared about me as a person. They wanted to see me grow. They were helping me along the way, giving me the tools that I needed uh, and not just forcing me to, to do a task or- I think people see servant as leadership as, well, that's just someone who is afraid of conflict and it wants to be nice all the time. I actually have found that servant leadership is the hardest path because it requires you to look at all of the stakeholders. The stakeholders, just anybody that's touched by the decision or the organization. So a stakeholder might be a shareholder, mm-hmm a vendor, obviously employees, customers, um, colleagues, um, business partners, et cetera. These are all people that are stakeholders in a decision or in a situation, in a conflict. But one of the stakeholders that we tend to forget is ourselves. And so if you think of all of these players as like kind of in a Venn diagram, the servant leader, in essence, is trying to draw a circle around as many of those things as they can and find as many wins for as many of those folks as possible, knowing that not everybody is going to get everything that they want or maybe not everything that they need. But the servant leader is thinking win-win. They're thinking, how can I create as many wins for as many people without causing undue detriment to anybody, right? And so when I do that... That might mean that this person over here can't work for the organization anymore, but how can I make that happen in a way that is honorable and respectful to that person, even though it's a hard truth that has to be communicated? Sometimes that's the best we can do as a servant leader. It doesn't mean we hold on to people that are bad for the organization or that's bad for them. It does mean that how we do it makes a difference that, you know, you can be you can lead in a crisis and go, okay, I need this done right now and here's why, but you can do it in a kind, considerate way, or you can be a jerk, right? And so the servant leader says, you know, how I do something is just as important as what I'm doing. Who I am while I'm leading is just important as what I'm talking about as I'm leading. And so servant leadership pays really close attention to who I am while I'm leading, not just what I'm doing. Yeah, that's a good good. summary. So nothing else? Okay. Well, then let me ask you the question I ask everybody where I end the show. Uh, What are you doing today? Wow, that's a great question. I think one of the things that I'm doing today to be better tomorrow is, and I think this relates to leadership, but it's more really just personal development. And that is, I'm getting very intentional about staying present with whoever I'm communicating with at that moment. Right now it's you. Um, And what I mean by, and that that word intention is just so overused, but it's the best word I have right now. And Mm -hmm. all I mean by that is it's so easy when I'm having a conversation with someone, whether it be my son who half hour before this podcast asked me to look at something he was working on with his brand new job he just got, or my husband talking to me about the day he had, or you know, one of the employees having a question or a client or whatever, it's so easy for me to drift off to the next thing or to be worrying about a big concern, a legitimate concern. And what I've tried to be more intentional about is pressing pause on all those outside influences and being very present with whoever I'm in front of and whoever I'm talking to 
And I find that as I do that, I actually have a lot more peace, more calm, and a lot less anxiety in my life because I'm not trying to manage, you really can't manage those things in that way, but I'm not trying to mentally white knuckle everything that's going on in my life when I should be just focusing on what's right in front of me. And so as I've been more and more present with whatever's going on in that very moment, I'm finding that other things are kind of calming down for me. And that's helping me be better uh, both today and tomorrow. It's a, it will be noticed by those around you. Because yeah. you know when you're talking <laughs> to somebody and they're distracted. Or you, when, when they're thinking about something else. Or they exactly. think about what they want to say next to you. But you really can't appreciate when people are listening, you know, even actively listening and, yeah. and giving you their full 100% attention. All right. Well, thank you very much, Shannon. This has been Be Better Tomorrow with Jason Fisher. Uh, if you want to find out anything more about Shannon, how you can get a hold of her, check out the show notes at BeBetterTomorrow.com. And I hope you found something in this show, and I'm sure you did, to help you be better tomorrow. Be Better Tomorrow is released under a Creative Commons 3.0 share-like attribution license, which means you can use this show or clips of it for anything you like as long as you give us credit and you aren't doing it for commercial purposes. The news you're hearing now is by Kevin McLeod of IncomTech, also released under Creative Commons share-like license. All the information about this show and others can be found at BeBetterTomorrow.com, and I hope, as always, you'll find something to help you be better tomorrow.